This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker is here. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. I'm so very glad that you are here today and you are going to be too. Right now, we are in a series called For the Love, a Faith groundbreakers. And it is exactly that. We're talking with people who are in one way or another, sort of going off the beaten path and showing us how to blaze a new spiritual trail and perhaps think a little outside of the norm and big, big shock. I'm really here for this. Um, So this is a great day, you guys, you lucky listeners. Literally, one of my dearest and best friends is on the show today. (laughs) It's so great when you can do work stuff with your friends. And we've done lots of work stuff together um, and lots of friend stuff together. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest today, Sarah Bessie, your favorite and mine. She's a gorgeous writer. And I mean that like gorgeous, lyrical, thoughtful amazing. Like just read two sentences of hers and you'll see what I mean. She is a writer's writer, 100% so gifted. Um, Sarah's Canadian. She lives um, absolutely up to the um, Canadians are the nicest people on earth trope. Um, she grew up in Western Canada, but now she lives near Vancouver in the most beautiful place on earth. When she posts pictures, it feels fake. Um, plus she's brilliant. She and another one of my friends and podcast favorite, Rachel Held Evans, actually founded the Evolving Faith Conference, which they describe as a gathering for the wanderers, the wanderers, status quo upenders, and spiritual refugees to discover you are not alone. So obviously she is one of ours. Um, I was there last year and I, I just won't forget it. Like what I picked up at that conference Um, I am still thinking about, I am still musing in my brain. I'm still like rolling it over just outstanding people and place. So Sarah is a wife to the love of her life. Brian, we'll talk about him and they have four kids, Anne and Joseph and Evelyn and Maggie. She is an Enneagram nine. If you're an Enneagrammer, 
Um, unashamed lover of Doctor Who and call the midwife. Like, don't get her started. She is, in a nutshell, absolutely wonderful. Um, so she's got two pretty critically acclaimed books, Jesus Feminist, great, and Out of Sorts. And then she has just turned in her third book called Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, Unlearning and Relearning God. I've read some of it. And I can tell you right now that when this book come, comes out in the fall, in October, you're going to want it. Uh, in fact, better yet, just go pre-order it right now. I'll have the link over in the transcript page. Um, you will thank me later. And um, a couple of years ago, Sarah was in a pretty bad car wreck that has kind of changed the course of her life, which we're going to talk about. And so um, she's been quietly thinking and writing through all of this and how her view of God has dramatically changed over the last couple of years. And we'll talk about what all of this means. And if you don't already know her, if you don't already follow her, you are going to be charmed out of your ever loving minds today because Sarah Bessie is one of the greatest human beings on this planet. And I am not, that is not a word of exaggeration. You're going to love our conversation. She is so full of depth and wisdom and goodness and kindness. And she's just a little bit snarky. So that's like the best human combination on the planet. So you guys help me welcome my very precious and good friend, Sarah Bessie. It's kind of funny to welcome you to the podcast because we talk almost every day. (laughs) don't we? On Foxer. <laughs> we do. In a way, we need to be very careful to remember that other people are listening because otherwise this could get off the rails pretty quick. <laughs> right. This just feels utterly familiar. And so we could just go down a rabbit hole of talking some crap like we do sometimes. It's fair. Mm-hmm. This is recorded. How long have we been friends? When did uh, we When did we become, when did we meet? I think we met in person in 2012 when we went to Haiti. That's right. That was a huge trip. We vlogged a lot of miles. We um, did. Me and you and our friend. uh, You know, I I can't remember ever in my life being so hot. I remember turning to you. I mean, again, we had just met and being like, is it normal to sweat down your spine? Because I'm sweating down my spine. And you were like, just go with it. (laughs) <laughs> that was like Haiti this, hot. You'll probably need to cut cut this out, but I don't know if you remember this or not. But um, we were trying to do those. Out. <laughs> you might want to. <laughs> there was this moment when we were supposed to be um, filming video for the legacy project that we were doing for the school, yep. and I couldn't do it. Remember? I, remember, I just like lost my mind. I was so nervous. I yep. had never been on camera. I had never preached right. in my life. I had never spoken in public. This was a huge thing for me. It was my first time leaving my children. Right. This was a huge, huge trip for me. And I remember being like, literally losing it. Yeah. I've been sitting at that little blue desk, putting my hand on the desk and like crying like yes. a little diaper baby. <laughs> and you oh. came up to me and you were like, you can quit and you can walk away, but then I'll tell everybody you hate orphans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I forgot I said that. What is wrong with me? But you know what? You did it. <laughs> you like the threat of public shame. You powered through. Yeah, oh is, my god! I have a picture of you with your head on that desk. This is a hundred percent the reason why I say the best friendships are equal parts hair patting and ass kicking. Like you need. <laughs> oh man, do we ever have that in spades? Um, so look, m- most of my listeners know you because I've talked about you, you know, a million times. Um, but for those of 
them that do not, I have filled them in about a little bit about you and kind of your background, sort of the arc of your story. But I wonder if just for a minute, would you indulge me um, and go backwards just a little bit and kind of set the table? So you, you grew up obviously on the plains of Western Canada. And then I love this part of your story. And I've heard you talk about a lot, but your parents who are so dear to me, I don't even know your parents, except I feel like I do, became Christians when you were a kid. So they're grown up new Christians, which is rare. Um, and so can you sort of talk about that season of your life, childhood, new Christian parents and how it impacted you and, and really your whole fa- family to move into sort of a, a faith world, um, which, you know, we just don't see that that often. No, I mean, that was, you know, sort of my origin story really was um, very much alongside of my parents. And I think that that's one of the things that is really special about it, um, especially now from this standpoint, being um, in this stage of my life, being able to look back and say, we did all that together. Yeah. And it was it was really remarkable. I mean, we did not my parents did not come from a context that was um, church going or Christian in any capacity. And so when my parents um, began to explore the idea of going to church, it was really disruptive. Mm. Um, And especially because, I mean, my parents are the type of people that I mean, once you're in, you're all the way in. I don't know where I get it from. Sure. (laughs) Anyway, they just fell head over heels in love with Jesus, honestly. Mm. I mean, there's not, I could make it a little bit no, more. That's what it was. Proper or whatever. But mm-hmm. I remember um, we had a, uh, a Mennonite babysitter, actually, that lived across the alley from my gran. And um, she went away to a church camp and they had kind of done the whole, you know, church camp thing about, you know, get people saved and whatever else. And she didn't really have a large social circle and she was not comfortable with the idea of knocking on doors, but she thought, well, I do babysit for these heathens. (laughs) 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 And so she bought us like this record. I don't know if you're, I'm dating myself, obviously, like, Mm -hmm. you know, now people call them vinyls, but sure. back then it was a record and uh, it was a Maranatha one, bullfrogs and butterflies. Girl, I can sing it right now. I know. I literally can't even hear. I literally cannot hear the the songs without just weeping. Absolutely weeping. And she bought it for my sister and I for Christmas with her babysitting money. And my sister and I loved it. Like we thought it was, I mean, again, we had like two records. And so it got a lot of of mileage. But when we would go to school, my mom would sit at home alone with that record. And she would listen to it over and over and just cry and cry because it was the first time she'd ever heard the gospel. I can fall. It's too dear. That was the point when she realized that what she was looking for was was Jesus. And so mm-hmm. she dragged us off to a little community church. And I mean, some of my most vivid memories, my very first memories of church are of my mom sitting beside me in Sunday school mm-hmm. because there were no other, hardly any other kids there. Yes. And they wanted my mom to teach because we were probably the only people there under, you know, 50. Yeah. They wanted her to teach Sunday school, and she was like, I don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, but I'll come. And so she used to come, and she would, like, pass out crayons and sit beside me. And I remember, like, they would teach us things about Jesus and teach us the Gospels. And I remember my mom and I looking at each other from those little Mm. dumb plastic kindergarten chairs and her knees up, you know, Mm. (laughs) and her looking at me and being like, isn't he amazing? It's the sweetest thing. so amazing. And so Uh we— did all of that together. 
And so in a lot of ways, it was, you know, we were learning together, we were coming of age together, even when I hit seasons in my life when I was deconstructing or I was Mm -hmm. reconstructing or rethinking. In a lot of ways, my parents have kept pace with me in that Mm. instead of seeing it as as a threat. That is... um the my favorite story of your childhood it's interesting because i mean you are fully canadian you are a canada girl and you came to the us for college and specifically like so opposite day you went to oklahoma um <laughs> like opposite day so i would love for you to talk about that season first of all i'm not even sure i've heard you say why you came here i don't even know if i know that Um, And then I would love to hear your um, analysis of the difference between U.S. and Canadian Christianity at that time. Um, And what did that feel like to you um, during, you know, you're 18, you're you're a kid. Oh, a baby. I can't Mm -hmm. even believe it now when I look back on it. It's just absolutely bonkers. But I think that that was part of even what drove my desire to go to the United States was I had spent you know, 10 years in, you know, just regular life. I mean, we, I grew up in Saskatchewan and uh, we moved to Winnipeg and then by then we were living in Calgary. And when it came time to go to university, um, I mean, we have a lot of great universities here and that Mm -hmm. was certainly an option. But I ended up hearing about this school down in Oklahoma that was uh, a Christian school that was a liberal arts Christian school. And I thought, I want to do that. Yeah. I, maybe not for long, maybe just for a year, but I would love to go to school with Christians. That sounds amazing. Mm. <laughs> I think that yeah. life is so incredibly <laughs> dear, right? I just I was like, I want to be with people who love Jesus. This would be amazing. <laughs> and so, you know, it ended up kind of coming together. And, you know, back then that was a really big deal to move mm. um, to the States. I mean, that was of before course. email was a thing. That was before oh, yeah. anybody had a cell phone. That was bef- when, I mean, calling home was a really big deal. It cost a lot. Totally. <laughs> yes. I mean, you're like watching the clock. How many yeah. minutes can you log? Yes. There was this sense of adventure to it. Mm. This sense of doing something different um, because of the nature of the churches where I grew up. I mean, I grew up in really small um, basement churches, right? Yeah. With like 20 people in a tambourine. Like we did right. not know what we did not know. We mm. were on like misfits, all of mm-hmm. us, you know? And so there was this sense for me of being like, I want to go where the Christians are. And yeah. they're, they're in Oklahoma, according sure. to her. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I did. I went to Oklahoma. Um, what was that like? Because um, without question, probably what you experienced and what you expected had to have some pretty big departure points. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think too, because there were, um, this was in the mid nineties. And so to me, I think the thing I remember most about being so different there, um, was how big everything was. Mm. Like there were just the churches were huge. There were so many people in them. Everybody you knew was a believer. Store mm. garage sale stores carried Christian stuff. I was like, yes. what is happening? <laughs> yes. Like, literally just craziness. And I mean, I remember being in these churches that were like arenas mm. and really missing the dumb, happy, clappy, homemade, yeah. janky 
churches that I had known and loved because I was Mm. like, I don't know how to do this. But I mean, at the same time, there were so many beautiful things to learn and things to Mm -hmm. see and and people to listen to and new voices that I hadn't heard before. And so it was a it was a really beautiful thing to be able to experience and have that happen. I mean, there was a lot of culture shock moving from Canada to um, Oklahoma. Apparently, people actually do carry guns. That's That's real. Yeah, that's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) I ended up marrying an American, so Brian's American. Mm -hmm. And we lived in uh, Texas for a number of years and then uh, moved back home, um, I think, in 05. And so I was in the States for about eight or nine years. And um, it feels like a totally different place to be now than it did then. Yeah, me too. And I've never left here. Um, There's been so much monumental shifting. You know what's funny is I'm hearing you talk. I'm sure we've said this before, but you and I were on the same street in Tulsa at the same time. Yes. Um, yeah, we were up the street at Southern Hills Baptist and you were down the street at ORU. I mean, we were a mile apart. We moved there in 96. When were you in college? I was there. I moved there, I think, 90, summer of 97. Yeah. Yeah. We were, like, 97. We were literally neighbors. Um, and didn't know, but it is interesting to think about how much has shifted here even since, um, which we're going to get to. Hey guys, Jen breaking in to make a quick recommendation while we're on the topic of good change. So as a writer and creative myself, I know how easy it is to fall into like working in a vacuum when I'm trying to get a project done isn't the best way or time for me to, I don't know, expand my perspective or help me grow in my craft, which is why I love Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators, for creatives of any kind. So with more than 25,000 classes in design and business, writing, social media, photography, so much more. You can discover, honestly, endless ways to fuel your curiosity um, or your creativity or even the career you already have. So you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a very awesome offer just for my listeners. You can get two months of Skillshare for free. Skillshare is offering the For the Love community two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for absolutely free. So to sign up, this is how all you have to do. Go to Skillshare.com slash For the Love. Okay, that's it. That's the link you need. Skillshare.com slash For the Love to start your free two months right now. This is a good investment in you, in your work, in your creativity, and in your dreams. So Skillshare.com slash For the Love. Okay, back to our show. One thing that you've always called yourself, and I love this, I wish I had coined this because it's so clever. Um, you've, you've described yourself as a recovering know-it-all, which is delightful. Um, can you talk about that for a minute and what that means? And when did the recovery process, if you are recovering, um, start? Well, <laughs> you know, this is one of those things that um, was almost something that I lived into before I was able to name it, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Sure does. I, I, I think that there was this... Um, 
a big part of what happened for me in my uh, early 20s and mid 20s, and I would say even argue into my late 20s and into my early 30s, was this sense of like needing to get all the right answers and be right. Yep. And even when I would shift in my opinions, there was still this sense of, but I know, I know the answer. Mm. I know the right mm-hmm. thing. And there was almost this um, way of understanding the world that I felt was one part given to me and one part just what I kind of construed, mm-hmm. um, which was that it was everything could be systematically understood and, and explained. Yeah. And it wasn't until I had really walked through more grief and more loss. I think yeah. almost everybody, when they begin to lose their know-it-allness, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, or they move into a season even of what we would maybe call deconstruction, mm-hmm. um, it happens at the threshold of grief, at a threshold of loss. Right. And so there's this sense of, I've lost either people, or I've lost mm-hmm. community, or I've lost my right answers, or I've lost someone. And so for me, a big thing that shifted for me was realizing I didn't need more right answers. Mm. What I needed was to let go of being such a know-it-all. Yes. And so become more comfortable with being curious, with mm. having some wonder, with having with re-embracing mystery, with learning how to say, I don't know, but isn't it amazing? Mm. And that to me has almost become like a spiritual um, discipline or practice, which is when I kind of coined the phrase being a recovering know-it-all, because to me, there's an active participatory thing to that. Yes. <laughs> Instead of just like, you almost have to like discipline yourself to remember that's right. that that's, I'm not called to be a know-it-all. That's I'm good. called to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's, that's enough. I appreciate you saying that because... Um, there is still to this living second, a very active and um, dominant culture that prioritizes rightness and certainty. This isn't something of yesteryear. You know, it's not like the church at large has sort of moved through that phase and it's sort of um, its story uh, that's still very present and, and in operation. And so for me, it's, it is too, uh, almost like an act of resistance to continue to say it is not only is it okay to not know, we don't know. I mean, we just, we, we, you know, who can fathom the entire canon and mysteries of God? Uh, hopefully not us. Uh, I've learned a lot from you on this a ton. Um, I, I, I met you online as you were we're going to get, I'm not, I'm not going to jump ahead. We're going to get to this, but when you were very deeply working this out in sort of a public written mm-hmm. space and that <laughs> like, was a sort big of, du- like a big dummy, <laughs> well, you know what wasn't everybody, you know, you and I both have kind of like warm, fuzzy nostalgia for that fun season of online writing. But that's when I um, started listening to you before I ever met you. And you were asking those big questions and you were giving these really, like beautifully wonderful answers that ha- sounded nothing like the answers I had grown up with. I mean, absolutely nothing. There was so- room for so much mystery in it. And so to that end, like a parallel path um, running alongside of that process um, has been, it, well, specifically your relationship with the church. Um, and then a bunch of us can relate. So, but to, to your story, your relationship with the church along this, um, you know, forward momentum has had a lot of ups and downs, which so is mine and I get it. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about how those dovetailed for you, because some people think that doubt is, um, 
it's contagious and dangerous and there's there's no room for any of it but i actually think it's really healthy and good and nourishing and spiritually forming um so can you talk about that time for you what church was what was happening with church um and then sort of how that came back together you know church has been one of those things that for me um there was a someone i was reading back in the uh, mid-2000s that coined, his name was Wayne Jacobson, and he coined a phrase called gratefully disillusioned mm. that I have really loved because I I have found that losing my illusions about church and even losing my ideals in some ways has made me more able to love what is That's and good. to embrace what is. Um, I think sometimes we can get so caught up in what it should be or what it ought to be that we forget to love it for what it is which is imperfect and messy and frustrating and beautiful and redemptive and sometimes devastating, right? All the things about being human happen within this context. And so, I mean, a big part of my story, my husband was uh, in full-time vocational ministry and we were at, you know, one of the the mega church, you know, kind of contexts in, uh, in Texas. And that was a, a huge turning point for me. Um, spiritually, I, I struggled. Mm. I mean, it's one of those things that yes. I think we don't talk about enough about deconstruction is how in those early stages, you're a horrible person to be with. Horrible, <laughs> Just literally intolerable. Yes, absolutely tolerable. And so there are many, many people I've had to go back and almost apologize to and say, I'm sorry. My questions were legitimate. I was a bit of a jerk. (laughs) Right. Same. I've done the exact same work. And so there was this sense of when we left ministry, it was a whole large story that's not really mine to tell, but we crashed out of ministry. We, we were burned out. We were exhausted. Our hearts were completely broken. Um, We were devastated in almost every way. And in that moment, um, I tacked really hard away. I kind of went, became very anti-institutional. I did not want to, I could hardly even bring myself to walk in the door of church without feeling almost something like trauma. And meanwhile, my husband was like, I'm going to go to seminary. Right. <laughs> right. So that was different. That was great. Mm-hmm. And I always have so much compassion when people talk to me about their their uh, relationships or their, their partners that they yeah. have um, when they are in different places. Because Brian and I lived like that for a really long time um, and had to learn how to love each other well and create a thriving home and marriage and family That's while right. being on very different theological pages. That's right. And so, I mean, honestly, I never thought I'd probably go back to church. And that was mm. really when I began blogging, was in 04, 05, yep. um, wrestling through a lot of those things, not thinking anybody would be reading it, of course, because, I mean, honestly, why would anybody read anything I wrote other than my sister? Right. Still read everything, which is what's great about sisters. Yes. <laughs> so, there was a sense, though, of this is done for me. I've evolved mm. past church. I don't need this. This is probably yeah. doing a lot of harm in the world, and it's certainly not doing me any good. Um, and in a lot of ways, losing church is what gave me back church in a more healthy way. That's Because right. then when I ended up actually beginning to piece together and realizing that the people who I loved in the world and the people who were doing good work in the world, they were all followers of Jesus. Yeah. And I began to realize, this is why we gather. This is, this is who we are. It's not that I need them to meet every need. It's not that I expect them to be perfect. It's That's not right. that every single Sunday I walk out of there being like, 
well, that was the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. Right. <laughs> no, gosh. Right. But it was more this sense of, I want to be together with you. Yes. I want to make casseroles for you when you have a baby, oh. and I want to pray for you when your marriage is struggling, and I want to yeah. partner with you in the work we're doing in this world. I want to be your friend. Yeah. And so having God give church back to me in the last you know eight or nine years that I have had um, has been redemptive and beautiful and good and freeing and frustrating and all of the things all at the same time. But I feel now my way of being in church is less um, stranglehold yeah. and more open hands. Totally. Um, same. Uh, I, I used to want something from church that was really unfair to even ask. It was incapable of giving me my entire being and life and um, spiritual development. And so I think in so many ways, we're setting the American church up for failure. When we say we, it's possible to organize this in such a way that we can literally meet virtually every need in the congregation, there's nowhere to go but down from there. And mm-hmm. so people are so chronically disappointed and oh, discouraged absolutely. and feel disconnected. Um, and yet we're the ones saying, this is what we can offer you. You know, well, I mean, sca- there's a sense too of being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I think that you're right in terms of disappointment, but I think there's also this sense of it centralizes mm. and it turns, uh, turns us into spectators. Totally. Instead of participants. And one of the things that is probably most dear to me in my expression of community and church and what I believe in so much is that priesthood of all believers. That's right. It's just this sense of having things open so everybody is is fully functioning, everybody's involved, that it's not a matter of—and that was part of the reason, I think, why we burned out of ministry all those years ago—was the pressure. It of was course. A sense that you had to be everything to everybody and run everything and fix yes. everything and do everything. And even if you worked 70 hours a week, that's not how we're supposed to be. Exactly. And what's more is it creates this whole system that then exists just to perpetuate itself. That's right. To become almost like this silo that doesn't have any, you know, reach or, or, or breadth or, or, um, or strength within the community or anything outside of even your own club. That's right. And that to me, I find really dangerous. And so I feel like the less, I, I still, I still get a little bit sketchy about some things about church for sure. Of course. I mean, I, I feel most comfortable with like the more stripped down kind of, you know, expressions anytime someone's, you know, getting too, you know, fancy. I, use, yeah, mm-hmm. I tend to get a bit nervous, but that's probably more my own baggage than mm. the Holy Spirit. <laughs> No, I feel the same way. And I've cycled through church much in the same way that you have. I've been in every sort of version of church, traditional, absolutely traditional and conservative. And then like, um, I don't know what else to call it except for cool church, you know? Um, hipster church. Yeah. Cool hipster church. And, you know, we play like Saturday Night Live clips in a Sunday sermon and whatever. Um, We're so edgy. We're going to play Coldplay on the transitions. That's exactly <laughs> the God, that, that's God's truth right there. Um <laughs> And then, you know, now into sort of a little wonky, wobbly, little ratchet thing. And I now know church is beautiful and a mess. And mm-hmm. it will both um, build us up in wonderful, beautiful, irreplaceable ways. And sometimes it will make us mad as the devil's hell. 
And oh. so, I, you know, I think I expect a little bit less out of it. And that frees me up to love it better. Um, yeah. And just be a normal person in it and let everybody else be a normal person as well. Hey, everybody, Jen dropping into the show for just a bonus minute. Okay, look, this is a message for my fellow sisters out there who may share this dilemma in a certain category of shopping. I don't know how you feel, but for me, bra shopping is the worst. So like figuring out your size, whether you need padding or underwire, what kind of neckline and fabrics, just whatever. I end up just grabbing one off the rack that looks kind of right and hope I can just breathe in it. So happy news. I have found an online service that makes bra shopping a whole new experience. Third Love uses these data points generated by literally millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz. Um, And so they design bras with breast size and shape in mind for this, for really a perfect fit, a premium feel. I'm wearing the bra that they said, this is the one for you. And they were exactly spot on right. And listen, they have more than 70 sizes. Okay. Including, gosh, I've been waiting for this my whole life. Their signature half cup sizes. And this is awesome. Every customer has 60 days to wear it and wash it. And if you don't like it, You can return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. So right now they're offering my listeners here at the show 15% off your first order. So here's what you do. Go to thirdlove.com slash for the love to get your perfect fitting bra from the comfort of your own home and 15% off your first purchase. So it's thirdlove.com slash for the love for 15% off today. All right, back to our show. You mentioned something a minute ago that I would love to talk about because in your season of stepping away from the church and which I don't know if you said this, but you and Brian moved back to Canada. You were healing. There was a little bit of that for me. I mean, yeah. for sure. I think less for Brian, but definitely for me, there was this sense of, um, the winds shifted yeah. and I didn't belong. And yes. I mean, just the Iraq war was gearing up. That's I was right. deep into deconstruction. It felt very difficult to be able to do that in the context that we were in. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why maybe I'm so uh, tender about church now is because I lost it for so long hmm. and never thought I'd get it back um, and had grieved it, right? Hmm. Had let it go and, and really let it sink to the bottom. And so it was a huge, you know, surprise of resurrection almost. But hmm. I think when, when you come back to it, what you were talking about there is just, I think it's worth our intention. I do too. I think it's worth my energy. I think it's worth my love. And my presence. And I think that at, at the end of the day, I, there was a story that I kind of told in, um, I think I saw, I think it was an out of sorts, but who can remember? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> but, at this point. but there was a, a thing that I remember thinking about what one of the ways that I felt like the Holy Spirit kind of broke this through for me was helping me move from the general to the particular. Hmm. And, you know, one of the ways that I looked at that was, you know, when Brian and I met, I had zero interest in marriage in general. Mm. I did not really particularly want to get married. I was young. I had a lot of other plans. To be fair, he did too. 
You know, yeah. one of us in general wanted to get married. But when we met each other, the particularity of each other was, I want you. Oh, that's a great example. I want to wake up with you. I want to kiss mm-hmm. you in dryer. I want to mm-hmm. do the minivan run with you. I want mm-hmm. all of this forever. And in a lot of ways, church became that way for me, where in general, it can make me absolutely insane. Yes. I can feel like I am going to tear the hair out of my head. What are we even doing here? But in the particularities, and I look at my school gym with the folding chairs and mm-hmm. Pat here at the door, and the peace people have taught my kids Sunday school, and yeah. they have shown up for me and loved me, and I hopefully I have done the same for them. In the particularities, I want them. That's right. That is um, wisdom right there. Such wisdom, because it is easy to fire shots across the bow from 30,000 feet up. You know, just this, it's all like this, and it's never like this, and big sweeping statements, but it's true in a granular way, kind of down at the ground, that um, is the rare experience for me, not the not the common experience. Um, the common experience is the, these people raised me <laughs> and my kids, and they're the ones that show up and they're the ones that we I nursed love. Our ba- we nursed our babies together in the back That's of the right. church, flashing exactly each other right. our boobs. Like this is 100%. what this is it. we actually do. And I mean, I don't want anybody listening to misunderstand me because I'm incredibly grateful for the season I spent away from church. Yeah. I'm incredibly grateful for the, there were, t- there were things I did need to leave. There were things mm. I did need to walk away from. There were some toxic environments for me or, sure. or theology or beliefs. And I did have to shift and find a place where I felt like I could thrive and be my whole self. Um, so I don't want anybody to kind of misunderstand me and say that, you know, well, you just need to kind of double down and stay put. That's totally. not at all my, my expression at all. I want to leave enough room here for people to be able to listen to the Holy Spirit for their own selves. That's good. Right? So during that time, during the away season, I do want to talk about this. That, as you mentioned, is when you started writing. Mm-hmm. And it was in the golden age, truly, of blogging. And those were in the like starry eyed, rosy glasses, early stages of this really incredible, unprecedented, brand new online community of writers and readers. And it was dreamy. Can you, we've we've pretty much lost it. I mean, I, there's little remnants, little pockets maybe that hang on, but I would love, because you were an OG, here. Um, <laughs> you really were. I, I would love for you to talk about that season a little bit and what was great about it, what you miss about it, all of it. Um, it was a really fun season. I look back on yeah. it now um, with a lot of um, tenderness, almost, mm-hmm. if that's a word, yep. mainly because it was so decentralized. It was such a hot mess. I mean, <laughs> this was before social media really had kind of taken root in the public consciousness. Totally. Uh, there was a really embedded sense of community. Um, and literally, I knew the, I, I read the blogs of every single person who commented on my blog. And so, <laughs> so dear. you know, like we could presuppose relationship. Mm. If we didn't like what somebody wrote that day, we knew they'd, they'd write something the next day that we'd probably uh-huh. love. And so yes. there was this sense of um, community goodwill. to it, mm-hmm. goodwill, um, longevity. Um, there was, it didn't feel so monumental. You felt That's like you right. got to play. And I think that's the thing mm. that I miss the most now. Oh, it's like oftentimes when sad. I write, I feel like I need to like say, say the thing that will stand the test of time. Totally. You know, and be above reproach and criticism and whatever else. And back then I said so much wrong stuff. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and oh, prolifically. I, prolifically. <laughs> there was not a time that I, that I went and, and preached anywhere for probably the first three or four years where I was not described as a prolific blogger, and that never really felt like a Because <laughs> you wrote virtually every day, right? Oh, I did. I wrote yeah. every single day. And there was, yep. um, there was no end game to it for me. And I think that that was part of the fun is we began to hear from voices that the gatekeepers had never really opened up to. Exactly. It used to be that it was primarily, especially when it came to theological writing or spiritual writing, the um, precedent was always an older, very well-educated white male. Yep. And now we had women and we had Mm. people from low church traditions like myself and we had people from outside of America and we had people who had different experiences with church and we had people who were not towing the party line and we had people of color. I mean, I remember when people began to read um, a lot of queer bloggers and being like, what do you know? They love Jesus. You know, they just sound like normal people. Right. (laughs) And there was this sense of, flattening. I mean, and it had, it was, I'm probably romanticizing it a bit, you know, in in context, but at the same time, it was really exciting because to me, it felt like for the first time we were hearing and being um, led by people who had usually been outside the gates. That's right. The the people who were invited to the table. And we began to realize that these were people who actually we could be following. Um, and should be uh, following. Yeah, oh my I, gosh, that was such an awakening for me that season. I wasn't writing online. I was just reading. And I met you and then your cohorts of mm-hmm. write because everybody linked to everybody back then. That was, Absolutely. it was this very generous community. Um, and I just, it's like, what? I, I, I had just never read so many of those perspectives or those ideas. I had just had such a myopic understanding of God and church and faith and theology up until that point. And that was just one of the most exciting times in my spiritual life. I was it just was sitting really there scrolling. For millions of years. I, I, still, I still grieve the loss of Google Reader. I was oh, <laughs> yes. I just read everything. Every morning I would read all the blogs. But oh. it was one of those things that... Um, that I loved about it was that it was almost all blogging was happening in the context of your life. That's right. And that was the point that I loved so much because you were wrestling out your theology, not as an issue and not as something apart from your life, but deeply embedded within your actual real life. So it was equal parts, you know, raising your kids and doing church and living in your community. And what movie did you watch this weekend? And here's what it sparked for me about, about God and scripture. And there was just this seamlessness to Mm. it that I find really exciting. I have, I really struggle with siloed theology that somehow is Mm -hmm. separate from embedded incarnational humanity. Mm. And so it felt very incarnational. It felt like the Holy spirit was breathing in every bit of it. Even when sometimes we were just writing dumb stuff. Yeah. Just, it was fun. It was fun. That's a good like period at the end of that sentence. It was fun. And everything, um, the stakes weren't so high. People can attribute sort of this space and this work to you specifically, because you are such a fierce supporter of women on every level from low church, as you mentioned, all the way to the top of the ranks. And, um, we could and have spent millions of days 
um, talking about the way that we need more women. We need them in the pulpit. We meet, we need them at the decision-making tables. We need them in charge. We need them everywhere, frankly. Um, but I, I, if we could sort of go underneath that, like at, at its ground level, because you've, again, written an entire book about this, but um, why do you think that a woman's perspective matters? Like, why does this even matter? Are we just, do we just have an ax to grind? Or is there something really vital um, about hearing a woman's perspective, specifically in a position of authority? Um, What's under all this that has such value and deserves our attention? Um, That's a great question and and a really interesting way to frame it. I think that... um, there's a lot of different ways I think that we could could approach that and answer that. I mean, from a perspective of, you know, the historical church and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, um, what I feel like we're missing if women are not in the room is part of the image of God. I do. Right? That mm-hmm. in the very beginning, the narrative that we are given is that we are made in the image of God. And I think that that's something that we lose when we start with the fall. Right. We lose the fact that the whole this whole thing of patriarchy and the way that things are is is a consequence of the fall. It is not God's original blessing and original heart for us. And so for me, I feel like this is something that is actually a story of redemption, a place where the church can and should be leading. But Paul uses this phrase in uh, one of his letters where he talks about um, that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Hmm. And one of the fantastic phrases from the King James. He says, spiritual wickedness in high places. Yes. Love, love that with mm-hmm. my whole heart. Wickedness. Here, it's a delicious here word. Here for it. Here for yes. it. But I honestly don't know what other term to kind of use for what, you know, patriarchy is or racism or homophobia. Like, these feel like powers and principalities to me that we, as the people of God, get to participate in the very teeth of those things, setting up signs of God's new world. That's right. And some of those signs include women walking in the wholeness and the fullness of who God has created and called her to be. And that brings richness and goodness to our churches, to our homes, to our communities. To me, that was always even my heart when I was writing Jesus Feminist was it was never meant to be this like academic defense of Christian feminism, which Hmm. anybody who's read it knows. We know, you know, <laughs> people who have done that way better than I have stood on their shoulders and honor, mm. honor that work. I think the thing that I wanted was for it to make the jump out of academia and out of the seminary and into our lives, into yeah. our marriages, our interactions with one another, our churches. There is something that we are missing about the whole image of God if we are not all at the table, if we are not all there. No, I I uh, couldn't possibly agree more, and and I'm I'm watching that um, truth and the way it lodges in my heart and mind roll out further and further and further. And it's such a good question to ask because it's taught me to say, "Who's not here? Yeah, like, who's Are not you at the table?" Around and saying, "Who's missing?" Who's missing? Right, exactly. And, you know, like, and this is one of the things I find, especially with churches that perhaps embrace theologically. Um, you know, a position of equality or what what theologians would call egalitarianism. Um, but they don't actually practice it. That's right. 
right? And so in a lot of ways, it's disingenuous because you talk a big game, but there's no women on your elder board. There's no women preaching from the pulpit. There's literally not a single time in my life that I've preached, Jen, and you probably have the same story. There's not a single time in my life that I've preached that I've not had multiple people come up to me and tell me it's the very first time they've heard a woman preach. Through tears. The very first time that they have heard a woman proclaim the gospel. That's right. And I remember some of the most powerful times of proclaiming the gospel for me was when I was pregnant, Hmm. visibly pregnant. And there was this sense of like just this holiness of being like Hmm. your life and you're carrying the gospel and you're proclaiming it. And it just is beautiful and redemptive and good. Having women's perspectives in the room when decisions are made, having women at um, even leading a lot of those decisions. It is, I mean, from a business perspective, you can see the reason why that's important, but I honestly believe that part of why it's important for us as the people of God is that these are signs of God's new world. Yes. This is this is a glimpse of what life is like in the kingdom of God when we are alongside of each other, when we are not at enmity with one another, when we are not concerned about power and control, but we yes. have a sense of love and welcome and grace towards one another that allows everybody to flourish. Mm. I, I wonder if one of the greatest enemies to that sort of egalitarian um, spiritual environment isn't that the typically the the men, more typically the white men, um, who are at the table are both probably in practice and certainly in a self-evaluation, well-intentioned. So they're mm-hmm. thinking, oh, absolutely. We're, we're good. Like, we're good people. We love God. We care about the church. We've, we're spiritually formed. Um, you know, it's this sort of idea that, but we're so qualified for this. And so I have literally been guilty of this. Even very, very recently in my own church, I'm, I'm on our board and I am also, I preach too. And as we were adding new um, members to our board, we had some blind spots. And it was so humbling to go backwards and A, have to fix what we screwed up. But B, really go, how did I miss that? And I, I think it was just simply we were looking at the makeup of who we had and we everybody was so beloved. Like, mm-hmm. this is these are good people. Mm-hmm. These and so it is some work, actually. It's work it is. It's to say who's not here. Yes, yeah. who's not here. And if they're not here, we are all the lesser for it. That's mm-hmm. the truth. Like, we will not flourish in the way that God has intentions for us to flourish if we are not including these voices from this wide array of us people. And mm-hmm. I've learned that a ton from you. Yes, I wanted to loop back really quickly on something you were saying about um, your church. And I thought that you modeled that really beautifully um, when I saw you walking through all of that. And even especially just being uh, quick to apologize and, and, and recorrect, I think, is a huge thing. And one of the things that I often hear from churches from, they'll come to me and say, we want to do better at this. How do we do better at it? I look around and, you know, I just don't, I just don't see it. Where are the women? Where are the women? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, just bless it. But yes. I think one of the things that you did really well in that season that I think is worthy of mentioning within the context of this conversation is you apologized and you asked. Hmm. And I feel like that is literally the the lowest bar that we can we can totally. do for one another. Is historically women are conditioned not to put their hand up. Hmm. 
they're conditioned that way, especially if they come from a religious background that told them that it is sinful or wicked or evil for them to do so, to be a leader. And so if you see women or people who are being marginalized in your community, there's so much more that is benching them than what we can see with our eyeballs. And so you almost have to put the weeds of that and and not only teach to it, but call it out. And that Hmm. was something you did for me. That was something that a lot of girlfriends did for me. A lot of uh, leaders whom I trust and know, they parted the weeds and they asked. And it's things like that that we need in our lives. We need them to ask us. We need them to equip us. We need them Hmm. to teach us and train us and send us out. We need them to say, you would be good at this. Hmm. You should do it when you're bad at it until you're good at it. Yes. Hey guys, this is Jen. I wanted to share something with you that could potentially change the way you look at meal planning. So if you're like me, trying to stick to healthier eating with my job and traveling and wrangling up food all the time for five kids whose tastes range from uh, hot dogs, that's my husband, um, to straight up vegan is a challenge. So I got my first Green Chef box sent straight to my door recently. And guys, I am a believer. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company. It matters to me. And their meal plans include paleo, which I chose and loved, vegan, vegetarian, keto, gluten-free, omnivore, LOL, and carnivore. So recipes are super quick and easy. Chef tips and photos, which I actually love, to guide you along. So everything's handpicked and delivered right to your door. And so this is how easy it is. Ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped. So you can try Green Chef today and get $50 off your first box by going to greenchef.us slash for the love green chef dot us slash for the love for fifty dollars off your first box okay now back to our show let's come forward a little bit i am as you know sincerely and genuinely and personally thrilled about your next book, um, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. We labored over that title with you. We did. Um, It was painful. But we got it. I love your title. I love your cover. Another labor. Um, This, uh, I want you to talk about this for a minute because it wasn't the book you thought you were going to write. It wasn't actually the book you wrote originally. Um, but you know, life comes in like a wrecking ball sometimes. And so I would love for you to talk about how this book came to be. Um, and obviously I want to, let's, we're going to have to include a little bit about the Pope and (laughs) just, can you kind of, can you sort of high level this, this book story for us? Sure. Um, well, my last book came out um, four years ago, and I had gotten started on writing a third book. And right about halfway through that process, um, I had a very devastating car accident. And it was life changing in almost every way. And I embarked on a year of, um, it's been a few years now since then, but I kept trying to write 
that third book while I was recovering, just almost this sense of digging in my heels. I'm not going to mm-hmm. admit that I'm wounded. I'm not going to admit that I, how, how much I'm struggling. Um, and honestly, just, it was a nightmare. Yeah, yes. it was a, a total nightmare. Okay. <laughs> and I remember turning in that book to my publisher mm-hmm. and saying like, almost like here, you know, <laughs> good luck. Yes. I mean, my previous two books, you know, are not perfect, but there was a sense for me when I was releasing them to begin kind of the editing process and begin to just sort of shape them for actual people to read them. There was a sense of like, this is the very best I have and let's make it better. And I'm proud of it. And I love it. And with this book, I was like, here's a pudding catch. It was like supposed to be 60,000 words. I think I turned in like 130,000 words oh, because Sarah, I just gosh. kept writing because yes. I had, I couldn't find my way out. Yeah. I could not figure out what I needed to say, what I wanted to say. I was in such constant chronic pain. I was oh. completely depressed. I was filled with anxiety and bitterness. I mean, just such a difficult season of life. And one of the best things that ever happened to me is they came back to me and told me it was garbage. <laughs> it was one of the best things that have uh, ever happened to me. And it yeah. was devastating. I was angry and I was sad. And I was honestly, one of the things that I find most, um, maybe instructive in how I was feeling in that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, And even in the months afterwards, uh, was I felt humiliated. Yes. Yeah. I was embarrassed, right? Like I'm supposed to be able to do better at this. I'm supposed, this is my thing. This is what I do. And now Mm -hmm. I'm garbage at it. And I thought I was going to quit writing. I did quit probably mm-hmm. 17 times. I mean, sure. you, you failed yeah. at a lot of those phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I've had two books. It's been a nice friend. Good to everybody. It was only by mm. embracing then at that point, this sense of, I need to think about healing. I can't keep doing this. I can spend the rest of my life circling the strain of failure and exhaustion and, um, and brokenness even. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to pursue healing when it looks differently, perhaps, than I had been taught? And so a lot of the seeds for this book have happened in the last few years. And I have held all of this story very close to my chest. Um, Ten years ago, I would have blogged every single day through it. Mm. But that is not how I have been the last four yeah. or five years. And so I have held the cards for this whole story of my life really, really closely. And it has been yes. a very tender um, experience of walking it out with my family and with uh, my friends, yeah. um, with my community, and then beginning to reimagine what could possibly be for life on the other side of being broken. What kind of life is on the other side of devastation, of humiliation, of loss, um, of even, you know, physical loss, right? My life is very different now than it was those uh, before that accident um, and remains very different. And so, right. it, you know, it was a really beautiful thing then to begin to write and almost tie all those threads together for the last mm. few years. Um, in a way, it has, it felt like... I literally don't know how I could continue in any kind of public ministry or leadership without telling everybody exactly what God has done to me. Yeah. And, and that was what this book has become yes. for me. Way more memoir than my previous two books. But of course, being me, of course, there's always, you know, a weaving of, of a larger theological story within that. Sure. But I feel this sense of like, it was a joy to write it. Hmm. It is, it has, I love, it's a weird <laughs> it is so personal and it is just like yeah. 
all again, I mean, we have all these things from car accidents to meeting the Pope in Rome to, you know, miracles yeah. to chronic yeah. illness, like all these things that are all just kind of weaving together to be able to say, this is what it looks like when God unbecomes hmm. for us and then rebecomes again. That's right. You touched on it, but I mean, that suffering is real and genuine and physical and emotional and spiritual. And then um, put your head down and believe. I mean, I don't know mm -hmm. what else to say. You just did. You just believed. Yeah. You believed God for it all and that he is still like active and good. And then this whole thing has emerged that is just a wonder. That's, I think, the thing that I'm so excited to put it in people's hands is I want people to remember that that your grief is an altar to meet with God. It's mm, good, right? That that God doesn't love the most productive people mess most. You know, like your yes, your Jesus doesn't just hang out with the winners. It's good, and sometimes it's when you are really down in the dirt that mm. you begin to realize what it means to be. Um, one with God, what it means to be loved by God, what it means to separate all those ways that you have, you know, hidden yourself from God. When those things get stripped away, um, it becomes an incredibly beautiful practice of being able to say, well, here I am. Yeah. Just like this. And, and that's so instructive. And I think we need it. I think we need this message right now. I think we're hungry for it. Um, as opposed to the winner's circle theology i this the timing is right and i'll um i'll always be grateful um that this me meandering path has brought you to this place um and now you're going to gift the world with it when does it come out october um, october yeah beginning yeah. of october is when it comes out um which feels like forever away like we know when you're really excited to give somebody something and you're just yes. like oh my gosh it's so far away. <laughs> yes. why can't i just give it to everybody right now i think one of the things that is most unique about this book for me um is that i'm way more open and and i write through my experiences in particular with the holy spirit hmm. and wanting to name and put um put some narrative around how I experience the Holy Spirit and what that looks like for me. And so for me, being able to kind of swing open that feels a little bit scary because sure. um, it's not something we talk about a whole lot in mm -hmm. um, the church uh, yeah. with any degree of humility. That's right. Right. Usually mm -hmm. when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's either like to weaponize it or manipulate it or to, you know, act like we've got it and somebody else doesn't mm -hmm. and you know, like whatever. Yeah. Else. And so learning to open up that door, hopefully mm -hmm. with a with some sense of invitation instead of certainty has been a really beautiful thing to be able to kind of explore as well. So wonderful. The one other thing I just want you to mention is something that you're doing right now that, you know, I am all in for. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, it's your monthly newsletter, a bit in transition, called Field Notes, which at this point is essentially a magazine. I mean, let's not sugarcoat this. <laughs> Definitely it is. It is. a full-court press magazine. Um, and there's, it's packed. I mean, it's just packed with goodness every month. I cannot believe how much time you log on this amazing um, content. Uh, so I would love for you to talk about Field Notes and a little bit about your book club. Can you drop both those in real quick? Yeah, sure. Um, well, when I pivoted away from blogging um, a few years ago, I really missed my readers. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, that's a, a big part of what we do. And I think that's something that you and I really hold in common is that mm-hmm. we genuinely think of and and love relationship with the people who read our stuff. That's right. And I miss that. And so I started doing an e-newsletter just kind of more to be like, well, here's almost to fill in the gap that blogging had yeah. lost for me. It felt more personal because you were in someone's email inbox instead of just like out in the wild you know, web where anybody could come along and do a drive-by on what you were saying. And so I felt like I got to be more personal. I got to be more open. Um, So it started off with just kind of exclusive essays. And then next thing I knew, I was like, well, here's all the books I'm reading. And here's, you know, here's somebody I think that you should, you should follow and you should check out. And here's uh, women worth following. And here's, um, you know, things I'm loving. Here's, let's talk about lipstick and Lent and, you know, all these other things. And yes. so in a way, it's almost like a month's worth of blogging in one email. And so that goes out once a month um, to my folks. And then I think it was back in January, I kind of mentioned in the essay that I was personally myself going to read um, 12 books um, by... Uh, on spiritual formation in particular. I was particularly mm-hmm. wanting to kind of lean a little bit more into spiritual formation this next year and um, was particularly going to be listening and, and reading only exclusively uh, Black and Indigenous uh, and people of color uh, yes. writers. And I said, here's the 12 I've picked. I have no idea if they're any good. I just haven't mm-hmm. read them before. I tried to pick ones I hadn't read before and in particularly mm-hmm. around spiritual formation. And I posted the list up and has so many people ask for to read it together. And so I was yeah. like, well, I'll just put together a quick Facebook group for it. <laughs> yes. And it's like three days later, we've got like 1,200 people in there. I was like, well, Amazing. escalated really quickly. I <laughs> yes. have no idea how to run a book club. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what the book club this is. And so anyway, we're just having such great conversations. We're talking about our January book, our February book. We've got so many good ones coming up. Um, it's just for subscribers to field notes too. And so that even feels, you know, good Special. From the perspective mm-hmm. of, oh, we get to talk to each other again. Right. It's, it's not just me sending an email to people. Now it's like the comment section again where you actually get to interact with each other and yes. not just me. Right. So that's And they can sign up for field notes at sarahbessie.com. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All the links are all there. Yeah, you're going to want to, you guys. So let's, let me just make this real easy for you. Just go to sarahbessie.com. We'll link it to the transcript. Um, it'll take you five seconds to sign up for field notes, and you're going to be so glad that you did. And when it comes, you kind of want to like um, pour a big mug of coffee and just put a blanket on your lap, just settle in because it's a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much in there. It's, it's just so much good content. It's it's really a gift. And so, um, and of course, Thank that's you. your front door to the book yes. club too. Thank you yes. so much for saying that. Are you kidding I me? That's, I read every word. One of my favorite things when I hear from people is when they're like, I save it for Saturday yes. night or for Sunday morning and I wait and I click all the links and I... I order yes. all the books in the library and I do all this stuff. I it's an event. That. It is. So and I do want to also make mention your your ministry of gifts. That is a part of the <laughs> offering that you give. And you typically pull from all of our shared favorites, no, notably Schitt's Creek, oh. um, Parks and Rec. I should probably Brooklyn. send you a picture for my um for the transcript of when I dressed up like Moira Rose for Halloween. I should probably <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the t-shirt because you're the t-shirt because you posted it so you made me buy it um i wore it on christmas day (laughs) okay wrapping up these are just three um quick little questions we're asking everybody in the faith series here's the first one so you can have dinner with any faith hero you want who who do you pick i think i know who you're gonna pick 
I think everybody probably in their dog yes. knows what I'm going to pick. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if, I could, if it would be anything in time and space, it would probably be Madeline Lingell. Of course. I mean, I was yeah, going to bet would, $1 million yeah. you were going to say that. I think that the reason why is because um, I had been writing or blogging, pardon me, for a, a quite a long time and didn't really see any a whole lot of other people who were writing like I was. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I found her memoirs it would have been um circle quiet is the first one that i read and she was writing about theology and about scripture and about these big themes of life and and philosophy and understanding but it was all woven through this her life through broken pipes and tired kids and you know things that were like the bad weather and career stuff and frustrations mm-hmm. and i was like women can do this mm-hmm. <laughs> So great. There's room for writers like us. There's room for for women who write about finding about finding and knowing and experiencing and believing and even hoping about God and the kingdom of God, not in spite of their life, but because of it. Yeah. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) Love that so much. Um how about this one? Do you have, and th- this could be from a huge pool of things. It could be either a verse, uh, maybe a story in the Bible or a section or a chapter or a whole book of it, or a quote or an idea or um, any sort of spiritual phrase um, that captures what you would consider like the essence of your faith. Hmm. Honestly, almost every message I preach, at some point, I always come back to Jesus's farewell discourse in the book of John in, in, in uh, chapter 15. Yeah. And this is the point when he is talking to the disciples. He is about to, to head into the, um, the crucifixion, to his torture, to everything that's coming up ahead towards resurrection and life on the other side. All these things are happening. And this is kind of that farewell discourse moment when he's talking about the vine and the branches that he's the real vine and that that God is the farmer and you know they want to abide in the vine that you want to, he wants us to make our home in him just as he does in us it's this is in this passage that he talks about how he's loved us the way that the father's loved him that we should make ourselves at home in his love and that this notion of being really uh, remaining and, and being intimately embedded in the love of God is something that deeply shaped my reconstruction process, deeply shapes my life today. This is the part of um, a scripture where Jesus says, no longer have I call you servants, but now I call you friends. Yeah. And there's this root command of like, you love each other. You okay. love each other. There was this one phrase in the message translation over in, I want to say it's First John. I should remember this since I preach it all the time. First John 4. Mm-hmm. When he writes that we have taken up permanent residence in a life of love. Mm-hmm. That's good. I love that phrase. That's so great. Finally, a question that you and I both ask and answer on the regular. Um, and as you know, it can be whatever you want. What is saving your life right now? For me, what's saving my life right now is um, is reconnecting uh, with the daily life of my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of my um, my health challenges and the way that life has changed, I've had to come off the road and, and quit preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has been a lot of grief to that for me um, because it did become such a huge part of my vocation and my a place where I found meaning and goodness. I felt like um, 
a huge intersection of co-creation with the Holy Spirit in that space. And so having to set down something that was so deeply meaningful to me was really painful. And there was a lot of grief to that. There still is a lot of loss to that. Um, But on the other side, there has been this really beautiful thing of the slowing down of my life. Hmm. of bringing it down to what is more essential, of taking away a lot of complications, of being able to be very steady for my children, yeah. uh, especially at the season of life that they're in right now. Um, we always used to joke around that, you know, when your kids are little, little, it's very physically exhausting. Mm-hmm. But when they get to like start to grow up, it becomes more spiritually and emotionally exhausting. Abs- this is 100% fact. <laughs> Yes. Being able to have the bandwidth for that, I think, has been good. Um, and honestly, being with them, like there are just moments when we're all in the house and it's like it's a Saturday and there's literally nothing on the calendar. And I don't know what to do with that because normally I'm gone <laughs> on Saturdays. I'm, That's right. I'm off. I'm doing things. And instead, all of a sudden, it's like, look, at we have an open space on the calendar. Mm. Who wants to play a game? Or who right. wants to go for a walk or who wants to, you know, go and, and bake something in the kitchen. And so just the slowing down of my life was enforced, but mm-hmm. it is what's saving my life now. I love that. And it's so like you to find that, to go, well, this is what it is. Where's the joy and the Jesus in it? And you will find it. You are one of my dearest, best, most favorite friends in the whole world. And and you know that's true. I mean, that is, you know for everyone really listening, true. we have... Well, there's, we've been through everything, I guess. I guess there's nothing we haven't mm-hmm. um, been through. And I, um, I love you so much. And I'm, I'm so like proud and honored to be your friend. And so thank you for what you've, um, how you've served us all so well for so long. Your um, capacity to do that in a generous and humble and beautiful way is rare. Um, to be able to hold the right things tightly and everything else loosely. It's just not something we get to see very often in a leader. Um, And so I've just, I've learned from you. I I consider you a best friend. I also can just consider you a mentor. And so. I love uh, that so much. You know, it feel the same way. I've just having this be able, being able to say that your friends are your mentors is an incredible, incredible gift. And you know that everything that you said is definitely reciprocated them. I love you. Give the babies and Brian a big hug and a kiss for me. I sure will. Love you too. Love you too. I love her so, so much. Like sincerely down to my core. I want you to know that that girl has been such a good friend to me for so many years. I mean, in the trenches, ride or die, going down with the ship kind of a friend. Um, she has stood with me in public, in private, in earnest, in sincerity. Um, I leaned on her during some really, really hard times, stuff I haven't even ever talked about. And she is like, she's like the friend that you dream of, like this rock who is just unshakable and forever in your corner. And so she's as good as her hype. She's as good as she sounded and you will want to follow her immediately, pre-order her book, sign up for field notes, all of it, do the whole thing over at jenhatmaker.com. I will have all those links, um, underneath the podcast tab, um, for this transcript, which is an amazing tool that Amanda builds out for you every single week. You guys, she logs so much time on that transcript page. We'll, we'll put up a bunch of pictures too, for me and Sarah over the years, you'll die. Um, and just everything we talked about, we'll have it over there for you. Um, and just of course the transcript in case you ever just want to read an interview as well. So 
um, be sure to be using that resource. Um, so on behalf of Amanda and Laura, our producer and her team, we are so, so glad to bring you this show every single week. It's just a, one of the great joys of our lives. So thanks for subscribing and reviewing and rating and sharing. You are the reason this podcast keeps working. Um, so we are in love with our listeners and this podcast community. So thanks for being who you are more to come in this amazing series on faith groundbreakers. You're not going to want to miss a single one and everybody's different. Um, it's really, really something interesting to share from every single guest in this lineup. So, um, absolutely come back next week. You'll be glad you did. You guys have a good one. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.